0: Is quite the opportunity. I am so excited uh, just to be able to share God's word with you today. Missy and I, as we've been down in Louisville, Kentucky, getting trained up for ministry, have been looking forward to being back with you. And even this moment of uh, of being together is is just been something I've been anticipating for a while. I think the I don't know what the age the age range is, but the fifth, fourth through sixth grade can follow uh, the Mitchells out uh, now. You can go ahead and do that. We're gonna be uh, so, uh, I'm going to be speaking on Romans 12, 1 through 2, so you can go ahead and start turning there in your Bibles now. But I, I wanted to kind of give you a couple anecdotes from our time down in, uh, in Louisville in preparation uh, you know, for this sermon. So um, a couple of things that have been highlights for us so far in Louisville have been not only the academic uh, precision that we've been taught with, but more the effect that it's had on our marriage. We've had a a lot of time to speak into each other's life, to talk about hard things, to talk about good things, and the result has been that Missy and I have been feeling like it's been drawing us together. And I can honestly say a lot of that has been Missy's faith. Uh, I've seen her take great strides of faith in God, and so we're seeing a lot of growth uh, in that, and that's just all God's grace. We've also uh, been learning a lot about parenting, Um, so I've been trying to be more faithful to do uh, Bible devotions with my son, Tristan, who's four years old. For those of you who have children, you know that that doesn't always go according to plan. Uh, <laughs> so I've been getting some truth across to him, I think, but it's been kind of coming in pieces, and I have a little story to illustrate that. So one day, I was in class, and Missy texted me this, that, that Tristan had rewritten the gospel song, if you're familiar with that song. It says, he said this, Holy God, him love because... Worship him, hide my sin. On the cross, here I go. I mean, he took my sins, mommy. By his sins, I live again. So we've got some truth getting through, but we may be making a heretic so you can keep praying. Uh, And it got worse because in verse two, he kind of went free form and he said, I love you and I want to poke you on the head. I'm sorry, mommy. To the cross I go, to the cross I go. (laughs) <laughs> I used to be in the Bible, but now I'm in the lion's den. So we have, we have uh, some truth getting in there. How much it's actually helping, we don't know. So we're, we're, we're going to turn to Romans 12 now. Um, but before we read the text, it's really helpful when you read a book in the Bible to understand the type of church it was written to and also to understand the chapters that precede where we read. And so, um, I want to just tell you a little bit about Rome. Rome was actually a, a pretty big church at the time of this writing. It was comprised of both Jews and Gentiles, and their cultural values were very different from each other. Jews believed that they needed to continue keeping the law, the old covenant, as they became Christians, and Gentiles had no uh, category for that. They didn't believe you needed to continue keeping those laws, and that was providing tension in this church. So Paul's just got done in chapters 1 through 11 expounding the incredible doctrines of justification by faith, assurance, election, and God's sovereignty, making it abundantly clear that all are sinful, but if you believe in Jesus, all are justified in faith and adopted and given assurance that they have been called to him and believe in him, both Jew and Gentile, seeking to unite them together as one community of God. So it's, it's with these truths of the gospel that happen in 1 through 11 that his thoughts in 12 really make sense. So what I want to do is kind of give you a mountaintop experience of chapters 1 through 11, the big peaks that Paul hits on. And so we're going to start reading in Romans 3, and we'll, we'll go through several passages here just to see what Paul communicates to us leading up to chapter 12. In Romans 3, he says in verse 21, Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. So we see Paul starts with this and says justification is a free gift and as we're declared righteous the the wrath of God is quenched and God is revealed as a God who really is just even though he had passed over those former sins. And then in Romans 5 verse 6 he says for while we were still weak at the right time Christ died for the ungodly for one would scarcely die for a righteous person though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. So God saved us not when we got our acts together, not when we cleaned ourselves up, but while we were still enemies with him, while we were still weak, God showed his love for us and seeing us for the sinners that we were and pursuing us and saving us. And in Romans 6, verse 8, it says, Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. and so we see Paul begins to show us that Christ's victory in conquering death and sin in his resurrection becomes our victory and gives us power to fight sin and temptation. Later in chapter 6, he says, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we exchanged a destiny of death with a destiny of eternal life in Christ Jesus. And that brings us to a point in Romans 8, 1 where Paul can make this audacious claim that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No shame, no guilt. We can have a clear conscience before God because of his saving and pursuing love and because of his justifying work for us. So later he says in in verse 14 of chapter 8, he says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. So not only did he reconcile to us us to himself while we were sinners and weak, he made us sons, so that now we're joint heirs with Jesus, so that when he receives all the glory, when he comes again, we will share in that glory. The truths are just piling up on top of each other and you're just saying, how can this be? How can this be? And Paul is building his argument to the point where in chapter 11, verse 33 through 36, he bursts into praise in a doxology and he says, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things, and to him be glory forever. Amen. And these are the mercies of God. We're about to read in Romans 12. It's by the mercies of God that he informs us of what we are to do. And it's with these glorious mountaintop truths of faith that we now proceed to see a section in Romans where Paul gets real practical he stops talking as much about doctrine and starts talking more about how that should affect our lives and how we should live. So let's go ahead and read this passage, Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Have you ever met a hipster? Maybe you don't know what that word means. Most of you, I think, do. Maybe you have a friend who has... All the visual signs of being a hipster, they have maybe it's a guy and he has a big beard or maybe just a big mustache, and he's got really tight pants, and he wears flannel all the time. He's kind of got like a beanie on in the back there. Well, and you've you've gone up to him and said, are you a hipster? And he said, no, man, I'm not a hipster. That is the first telltale sign that that person actually is a hipster. (laughs) Because hipsters like to be unique. They like to be different. They don't like being put into a mold. Maybe you'll, ask, you'll you'll say, I love this band, and you'll hear them respond, I kind of like them before they got radio play. Or or maybe you'll 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 say, Hey, so what do you like to do, man? What, what do you do for hobbies? And they'll just be like, I just, you know, I just like being different. I would be hard to describe to you what I like to do. <laughs> or maybe, you know, you hear them order food at a restaurant and they say, Is this organic or non-pasteurized? Right? They have these very specific tastes. Well, Christy Wampole, a New York Times writer wrote an interesting portrait of the hipster. This is what she says. She writes way better than I ever could, so this isn't me. The hipster haunts every city street and university town, manifesting a nostalgia for times he never lived himself. He appropriates outmoded fashions, the mustache, no offense Mr. Perez, the tiny shorts, Mechanisms, fixed-gear bicycles, portable record players, and hobbies like homebrewing and playing trombone. He harvests awkwardness and self-consciousness. Before he makes any choice, he has proceeded through several stages of self-scrutiny. The hipster is a scholar of social reforms, a student of cool. He studies relentlessly, foraging for what has yet to be found by the mainstream. He's a walking citation. His clothes refer to to much more than themselves. And he tries to negotiate the age-old problem of individuality. Not with concepts, though, with material things. But even if you, like a hipster, spend all your time and effort trying to be different, once you look up around you, you're going to find yourself living in Seattle, surrounded by a bunch of people who look exactly like you. Right? There is a strong pull from our culture on us that's shaping us that's conforming us so that we find ourselves a part of a larger subculture. And Romans 12 tells us that there's an ongoing battle for our souls. Will you be conformed to the mold of this world by its searching hands, or will you be transformed by the renewal of your mind into the image of Christ? You see, there's no middle ground in the Christian life. You're either fighting forward Being transformed, or you're being conformed backwards. And it's because of that that we need to be dedicated to the Lord. That's what the heart of this passage is saying. So the main point that we want to consider from this text is, is this. God's mercy compels us to dedicate our entire lives to him. Simple. But God's mercy compels us to dedicate our entire lives to him. So that's the heart of this text. It's, it's seeking to, to claim all of us in our pursuit of God. God's mercy compels us to dedicate our entire lives to him. So we're going to look at this theme of dedication. So we're looking at three things that should mark our lives. The first thing is that our lives should be completely committed. So completely committed. We'll see this in verse 1 where he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul's words here that he's using have an urgency to them that he has yet to demonstrate in chapters 1 through 11. He's calling us to action. He's urging us. He's strongly calling us to present our bodies as living and holy and acceptable sacrifices to him. Now, when he says body, present our bodies, he doesn't mean just your physical components. He means your entire person. So because of the mercy that we've just recounted, we should give everything to God. We should completely commit. But what kind of sacrifices is Paul talking about here? Well, he uses three adjectives to describe the sacrifices. They're living sacrifices, they're holy sacrifices, and they're acceptable ones. So all of these terms, living, holy, and acceptable, they're all set against the backdrop of the Old Testament sacrificial system. See, with Israel, God had ordained a system that made them able to be forgive, uh, forgiven Excuse me, when they sinned. So if they sinned, they could bring an animal to a priest, the animal would be killed in place of them. Or if they wanted to worship God through showing their devotion or through showing their dedication, they could give of the best of their flock. To be sacrificed in worship of God. Now, the sacrifices that Paul's talking about here are different. They're living sacrifices. The animals were killed, but we don't kill animals anymore, right? Peter would have something to say about that, I think, if, if we did. We give God our lives as a sacrifice of praise. So, you're, what, what is worship? Monday through Friday routines are worship. How you give your life to God is worship. And if you're like me, it's tempting to reduce the concept of worship down to singing in church in a pew, maybe putting an offering into a basket or hearing a sermon. And that is worship. Even as we heard earlier today, that is worship. But that's not all there is to worship. Worship is our entire lives, and that's what this passage is talking about. A dedicated life, one that worships God, is completely committed to him. When you pray in earnest in your bathroom, this, that you're sanctuary at home because your kids are driving you crazy, and you say, God, please help me get through the day, and you step out in faith, that is worship. It's worship. It's a holy moment before, between you and God. When you call your brother on the phone because it's late at night, you're home alone, and you're feeling tempted, and you need prayer, that is worship. When you choose to take the worst, clean up the office before Christmas assignment, because you want to show the people that don't know Christ what it's like to to be a servant, that's worship. Worship is far beyond just lifting our hands and singing. Worship is giving him our lives. God wants more than us just to sign up for his club and say, yeah, I'm a Christian. He wants all of us. He wants our entire lives. He wants us to completely commit to choose to live for him and worship. But these aren't just living sacrifices, these are holy sacrifices, right? And in that Old Testament system, you had to use a priest to make a sacrifice. You couldn't just offer it on your own. The priest had to go through several cleansing ceremonies where they made themselves holy before God. And if they didn't, they could die. The lamb that you chose had to be the best of your flock. It didn't it wasn't good for you to take your weak one that you knew was going to die anyways and sacrifice that. And similarly though we don't sacrifice animals, we shouldn't just be giving to God the, the leftover time. Right? Where we we don't have anything else better going on. So I guess I'll pray. We should be giving him every second. Every mundane moment is our masters. So the heart of this text is it's it's calling us to complete devotion, right? I think we're seeing that. And as I was preparing this sermon, I, this hit me. I was like, this is heavy. This is this is calling me to give everything to God. And the, the Lord just was speaking to me, just helping me think about th- this question. Have have I given to God the things I cherish most? Have you get, so think that of yourself. Have you given to God the things you cherish most? Things like your spouse, things like your family, your house, things like your position at work, maybe, if you've been there for a while, or maybe your position in the church or a desired position at church. Those things can be really subtle, can't they? They can, all of a sudden, we can feel entitled to them in a sense, like, that's mine. But this passage actually doesn't give us space for having our stuff and God's stuff. Everything is to be dedicated to God. So have you dedicated to God the things that cherish that you cherish most? Now even considering that type of devotion is extremely overwhelming. But we have to realize that Paul didn't stop with holy sacrifices. They're acceptable sacrifices too. And this is an incredible thought. What he means when he says you are to give acceptable sacrifices is that you are to please God. Now, Paul wouldn't be calling us to please God if we couldn't please God. He's implying that we can do this. God's commandments become his enablements by his grace. When he calls you to something, his grace is standing by right there to help you to do it. We can please God with our lives. He wants this type of devotion from you, and he's ready and willing to help us. Now, think about the implications of this. Have you ever felt like you haven't amounted to much in your life? Have you ever had a moment where you just feel like you're not important? I have many times as a teacher, as a husband, as a parent. Just, man, I'm just not doing a good job. God has a different view of us. He uniquely delights in our worship of him. He sees us with a love and with a tenderness that goes beyond any type of tenderness that you've ever demonstrated for anybody else. We can delight and please the transcendent God. This is the God who's the almighty, holy one, who can't stand sin, who is goodness, who is justice, truth, and love. This is the one that we can please. This is the God who spins the world on its axis. This is the God that when an avalanche is falling on a hiker's head holds back the snow. This is the God that plucked the Israelites out of the mighty uh, hands of Pharaoh. Though they had chariots and they had mighty power, he just pulled them out of it. Without them even casting a single arrow or, or striking a single blow, he just pulled them out. And then they got to a mighty water and he just parted the Red Sea with a mighty wind. They didn't row. God is transcendent. God is great. And you can please him. You can give acceptable sacrifices. When we completely commit, we please him. And and brothers and sisters, what else is worth us doing that for? Everything else will come up empty. Money just leaves us wanting more. It's like magic or something, right? You get a pay increase, all of a sudden you need more money. I don't know how that works, but it's true. Friendships end. and It tears us apart. Beauty fades. But the dedicated, completely committed Christian life is given wholly to Jesus and filled with the delight of the Savior. Now, in the Old Testament, there was a special type of offering you could make if you really wanted to worship God. It was called a burnt offering. And in this offering, it was unique because the person who gave the animal didn't eat any of the animal. Many of the other offerings they did. They would eat a part of it. Also, the priests would oftentimes eat of the animal as well. That's how they lived. But with the burnt offering, the entire animal was consumed in the fire. God wants us to live lives that are consumed like a burnt offering. Completely committed to him, on fire for him, and radical for him. And when the aroma of that sacrifice reaches God, it fills him with a pleasure and with a joy that should just take our breath away. But how is this possible? We should be stopping for a second and just thinking, like, okay, the reality is right now I'm distracted. Right now I'm I'm a sinful person. Maybe you got in an argument on the way here, and you're just you're just really aware that you're a sinner before God? Well, we don't make sacrifices anymore for a specific reason. It's because that through the cross, we no longer need to make sacrifices to God because of the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. How can our lives be like an offering of worship to God? Because he was taken outside of the camp And his body was consumed as our burnt offering. His body was scourged. His hands were pierced. His heart was stopped. It was crushed by the wrath of God. For you and for me, if you believe in him. He was made our sacrificial lamb. And he could, have, he could have resisted. It wasn't just like a lamb who's almost helplessly taken to the slaughter. He had the might of God on his side. He could have called down a multitude of angels to deliver him, but no, because of the joy set before him, he went to that cross and he took the wrath of God on his shoulders. And friend, if you have not yet seen that the sacrifices you attempt to offer God cannot atone yourself, If you have not placed your trust into Christ, you are not at a place where you can please God yet. Romans 3 is a place where Paul was really clear about this. Listen to what he said. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lisp, their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, and their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths in ruin are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. That description is is scary. And it's it was true of me before I knew Jesus. The only reason I didn't kill someone was because I cared too much what people thought about me. I was using them for my own glory. It was disgusting. Everyone outside of Christ is described in that sentence. And if you haven't seen that you can't please God with your works and given up hope in yourself and trusted in Christ, friends, you're not able to make the type of sacrifice that God requires. The song that we sang earlier just really made this point well. I, I was just As I was singing, I just made a mental note of it. It says, Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. And foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. You see, Romans 10, verse 13, interjects hope into us, like that verse did from that song. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you cry out to him, friend, and you find yourself in that Romans 3 description, you will no longer be in that description. You will go from death to life. And even in your weakness and even in your sins, he will find you, he will reconcile you, and he will make you a son with him in Christ. You see, friends, we need Jesus' death in our place. But we also need his righteousness for our life. We need his pure motives, his pure thoughts, his pure actions to be put in place of our evil ones. And that's what happens when you believe in him. Our fate now is, is, isn't held in the balance. Once you believe in Christ, it's not as though you're, you're sacrificing, hoping that your sacrifices will pile up enough that God will actually be pleased. No, your destination is set and you will, you will, you will ju- be justified before God. Longman and Garland uh, say this really well. They say, heathens sacrifice to obtain mercy, but Christians sacrifice because they have already received mercy. You see, your sacrifice is a response. It doesn't atone you. It's just the appropriate response to being atoned for. It's by the mercies of God in Christ that we have this opportunity. Will you give God everything? You have that opportunity now and believing in Jesus. Will you live a life of gratitude and thanksgiving? Right now, we shouldn't feel a weight of crushing responsibility. Please don't feel that. We should be thrilled. Feel an excitement welling up in us that we have an opportunity to live for God completely. Hebrews thirteen fifteen says, Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. God is calling us to completely commit to him today. And John Chrysostom is an early church father that captures what it looks like to be a living sacrifice for God. This was written a really long time ago, so the words are a little bit old. And how is the body, it may be said, to become a sacrifice? Let the eye look on no evil thing, and it hath become a sacrifice. Let thy tongue speak nothing filthy, and it hath become an offering. Let thine hand do no lawless deed, and it hath become a wild, burnt offering. And so the idea of repenting of our sins, of putting on the things of Christ and putting off the old self, in that we are becoming living sacrifices for God. So if we completely commit our lives to God, We give holy, living, acceptable sacrifices. Now, notice the last part of verse 1, where it says, this is your spiritual worship. That's an interesting phrase, right? Spiritual worship. What, What Paul's getting at here by pairing these words together is he's saying that this type of worship makes sense in light of who you are in Christ. It's a worship that's only made possible by being saved by Christ. It's worshiping as a saved person, as a spiritual person in Christ. It's worshiping that goes beyond going through the motions in worship. It's worship in Christ. So think of the opportunity we have today just to to live completely committed lives. This is what it's like when we don't do that. Living a half-dedicated Christian life is like if you were given a brand new Mercedes-Benz on Christmas. You walk out, it's got the bow on it, and you're just like, oh my goodness, I'm living a commercial, right? Right? But then the next day, Monday comes, and you have your normal five-mile commute that you usually walk, and you say, you know what, I'm going to walk this still. And you walk the five miles, Monday through Friday, and then you're hanging out with your friends on the weekend, and you say, man, my feet hurt. You need to get in the car and drive, right? And let your heart feel the joy of knowing that, man, you were given something amazing, right? Right? It's similar in this. We need to live like saved people and let the joy well up in our hearts that we're pleasing God and our lives, are fragrant aromas, and though we may struggle and though we may feel spent, man, there's a transcendent God that sees all this. And Risen Hope, as I, I was prepping this, I just thought, man, this room is filled with people I respect and look up to. That like, I want to be more of a living sacrifice like you guys. And I felt like the Lord just wanted to encourage those of you who really feel like you're, you're a burnt offering right now. Your, your whole life just feels consumed right now. You're at your last, last uh, amount of energy. You're just totally spent. God sees it, guys. If you've been serving like crazy, you're not sure how you can keep going, he sees it, and he's pouring grace upon you even now. And your life is a fragrant aroma to him. But all of us, even the most devout, we're prone to hold back complete commitment. It's easier just to kind of give him part of our lives. But God's calling us to completely commit today. So that's our first point. The next two will be shorter, I promise. Uh, <laughs> um, so the, the, the first point is that a dedicated Christian life is completely committed to God, right? This, the second point is that we need to have a dedicated Christian life that's mentally maintained. There's a, a mental maintaining that takes place in the Christian life so we'll see this in verse 2 do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind in verse 2 we see that our pursuit of God isn't just about a one-time complete commitment it's about a daily continual renewing of our commitment to God now some people hate new year's resolutions they can't stand him, and they spend all their time just bashing people online about it, right? I saw someone today post, uh, New, uh, January 1, I'm going to read the whole Bible this year. January 2, man, i got to catch my on Bible reading plan. January 3, I'm not legalistic at all, you know, I don't need to read the Bible, right? You see people doing stuff like that, and, and I think actually New Year's resolutions get a bad rap. You see, passages like this are kind of calling us to a continual New Year's resolution where we're not just making a one-time thing, that's where we mess up, right? But we're continually recommitting. Why do we need to do this? Why do we need to continually refocus on God? Well, because this world is seeking to conform us. You see that in this passage? Paul must shout, do not be conformed, because this world's way of thinking is broken. And it's calling to us daily. Every single commercial we watch, every single grocery store checkout line that we, we go into, every single NPR program that we listen to that maybe says being a mom's not enough, every, every we look around and see broken marriages, and we see schools filled with temptation that we never could have faced when we were youth. The world is calling, and it's glorifying things that should not be glorified. There's a brokenness to the the way of the world, the conformed nature of the world, that we have to resist. We need to mentally maintain our resolve to consistently resist the conforming nature of this world. So how are we to maintain our dedication to God? Paul's simple answer, by the renewal of your mind. Now, what does it look like to renew your mind? Well, part of this is just a basic decision to set your mind on things of Christ, right? Right? when you hear a sermon, right? exposing yourself to that and, 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 and really being engaged with it, studying your Bible, or maybe even uh, you know, having a conversation with somebody. You know, the, the, the sentence, how are your devotions going, right? Usually that brings flushed, right? You're immediately embarrassed. Uh, and and you, know, you kind of say, well, uh, you know, it's like, like a month ago I was you know, reading this thing. It doesn't be an awkward thing, right? Sometimes crushing you know, condemnation comes. You're like, yeah, I should be doing a better job. You know, it doesn't need to be like that. Because devotions aren't just, they're not a duty that we do to be good Christians, really. That's like, you know, it's maybe a part of it. But the bigger part is it's a tremendous opportunity to renew our minds. Not, you know, reading our Bible, not renewing our mind is kind of like marching into war without any armor or weapons on. You know? Not not renewing our mind is kind of like driving a tractor trailer for the first time on the Audubon without any practice, right? You're like, ar, right? you're just going crazy on there. But if you had just put some practice in, it would have been a lot easier, right? The, the, the way that the, Paul is arguing here is he's saying that we, we renew our mind to strengthen our resolve, right? It's like working out to make our muscles strong. So reading God's word is a tremendous opportunity and it prepares us to live completely committed lives. John Piper has a great quote on this, as usual. Um, so he says this, Listen to rich expositions of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So this is a way you can renew your mind. So think about how when Tim is faithfully bringing God's word, right? He's is, he is just saying, here's Christ. And he's holding him up. Is your heart engaged with that? Are you saying, Lord, show me Christ, renew my mind? Read your Bible from cover to cover, always in search of the revelation of the glory of Christ. Are your Bible reading times more of a checklist or a devotion? Are you seeking to find Christ and be renewed in your mind as you read? Read and ponder the Bible-saturated, Christ-exalting writings of great spiritual men and women and form the habit of meditating on the perfections of Christ. And in it all, pray, pray, pray that the Holy Spirit will renew your mind, that you may desire and approve the will of God. So, that all of life will become worship to the glory of God. So, in your prayer times, is it just filled with a checklist of people that you pray for? That's a good thing. Don't stop doing that. Don't hear me bashing that. It's great. But we shouldn't just do that, right? We should have times in our prayer times where we're fixing our minds on the glories of Christ so that we might be renewed and be refocused in our commitment. Now, I, I hear in November, Alex uh, gave a bunch of uh, Bible reading plans for you guys to consider. And so I won't bring any of those to bear now. But I will just say, a lot of people do Bible reading plans around this time. I think it's a great thing if you haven't, don't have a plan. I just would encourage you to make sure you have one today. If you haven't made a Bible reading plan for the year, think about using one of those plans that he put in, uh, in, uh, in front of you in November. But another important aspect of renewing our minds is doing the truth that we believe, right? We know it's totally, a totally different thing to know about something and doing it, right? Think about throwing a curveball. It might be kind of easy, I'm not sure, to, to, to pass a test on throwing a curveball. You can basically just pick up a ball, kind of twist your arm and throw it, right? You just write that down. It's a totally different thing to teach a lesson on the physical Newton, Newton's laws at work when you deliver a curveball, right? It's a totally different thing to actually grab a baseball, grip it correctly, have your elbow angle right, and release it at the exact point as you follow thir- through perfectly, right? That comes through doing it. There's a, there's a sense where we need to renew our minds by acting on the truth that we are hearing. And James 1 says this really well in verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, and he goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So there's a a permanence to our understanding that comes from doing the word. And if we just hear it, if we just open our Bibles and sort of just see the Word and we go off and live lives that, don't harm, uh, that aren't in harmony with that at all, we're going to forget what we've, we've read. There's power in doing and renewing our minds. So we need to completely commit and we need to mentally maintain that commitment. And this third point, this third thing that should mark the dedicated Christian life is the result of those two things. The thing that should mark mark our lives as a result of this is delighting in discernment. So that's our third point, delighting in discernment. We'll see this in the second half of verse 2. He says that we, by the renewal of your minds, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So the end result of the Christian life being completely committed and mentally maintained is that you truly delight in discernment. Paul, by saying discernment here, is is saying you approve what God approves. What God sees as good, you see as good. So here's God's promise to you today. Should you give him everything, as hard as that is, as sacrificial as that is, and renew your mind consistently, as hard as that is, here's what the result will be. You will end up being like Christ. You will daily find yourself growing to be thinking like God, to have a heart that's like God's, so that when things happen that reveal his will, you look on it with pleasure and not with sadness. Your gut instinct becomes like the will of God. It's like like this. So my son has a hard time sometimes eating food. I don't know if any of you else can relate with that. But we'll, we'll, we'll teach him sometimes you have to say thank you, even though you don't like it. And so, which is maybe not a good idea. But anyways, um, so, so we'll be like, all right, eat your vegetables. And he'll be like, thank you, Mom, for, e- for giving me my vegetables. And there's an obedience there, kind of, but it's not a heartfelt obedience, right? This passage is promising that the result of renewing your mind is that you will have a heartfelt obedience. There will be a, 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 an approval, a discernment, and testing and approving the will of God. You see, we need a reprogramming of our minds. They tend to look more like the conformity of the world, broken, right? And we need to daily be reshaped and transformed so that we might be able to discern what is God's will. Now, a common question when you get to a passage like this is, so how do I understand the the will of God? How do I discern it, right? We all get to like big decisions in life or maybe even just momentary things where like, it would be really nice to know like, what God would say about this, right? Well, there are places in Scripture where it's black and white, right? Where it's just clear. So if someone comes up to you and says, oh man, you know, God told me it's okay to be with this girl I'm sleeping with, you can just be like, well, you shall not commit adultery, right? You can just hold this up to them and it's objective and this is authoritative truth. But... There's another category on uh, judgment on things that are not clearly laid out in Scripture, right? A lot of these gray matters that we deal with. And for these things, there's no shortcuts. There's no magic prayers. There's no sort of method of discernment beyond the daily renewal of your mind so that the end result is that you approve the will of God. We want a quick fix, don't we? Like, you know what? I wasn't living for God, but now I am. So let me just like know what you think, God. Right? But God likes to train us slowly to become like Christ, right? So that we end up delighting in discernment through many times of, of failing. But God's promise is not, not that we will instantly, you know, look like we're delighting in discernment, but there will be a slow, gradual, unstoppable progress made in your life. So let me ask you. In, in the decisions you're making in life, are they informed by the scriptures? So that could range from like big decisions on like what job to take, but it could also range from smaller ones of like what Netflix show we're gonna watch tonight. If someone were to ask you, so like what scriptures are informing you watching that? Would would there be something that was renewing your mind that was informing you and in making that decision? We should be thinking about that. Now, there's, there's one other place in Paul's writings where he uses this word renewal. It's in Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, and it has a lot of parallels to what this passage says, and it introduces one more point that I think is going to help us to have faith to grow in the way God's calling us today. Here's what he says. "...put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires." And be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. So here, there's there's a double action taking place of the Holy Spirit's activity in us. We are being renewed as we seek to be renewed, right? But the Spirit of God is empowering it. So what we need to understand today is as we seek to renew our minds, we have to understand that the same Spirit that was present and active in Christ's life is present and active right now in our lives. How did Christ overcome the temptations in the wilderness? He was empowered by the Spirit of God, and you are empowered by that same Spirit to renew your mind. How did Christ have patience for His disciples when they time and time again didn't get the point? The Spirit empowered him. The same Spirit that empowered Christ's body to be risen from the grave is lifting us from the ruin that our feeble attempts at holiness so often look like. We know the will of God, not by a law, not by some magical ritual, not by, the, the, by some mystical reality, but by the inner renewal of the mind. The moral consciousness that we cultivate by the spirits working within us. So this text, it's promising that if we completely commit to him and renew our minds, we'll find ourselves delighting in God's will more and more. Now the Bible is the primary way by which God speaks to us today, but there are other aspects of approving God's will that are relevant too. The Spirit of God does prompt us to do things, right? We might feel our conscience pricked, I shouldn't be watching this. Or maybe you might be at the park one day and feel like I'm supposed to go talk to that person. The Spirit works in that way, right? And he does reveal the will of God for us in a subjective way. And we have to be careful with that, right? And always submit it to the Scriptures. But let me ask you a question. If God were giving you promptings today, would you hear it? Would you be listening? Do you have a gut reaction of resisting those promptings? Or are you seeking and craving them, wanting to follow him more? This also applies to when things don't go our way, or at least what seems our way, when hard stuff happens. This this is a a world of tragedy, isn't it? I mean, children die, so much promise and potential. Maybe there's a, a relative that you really weren't able to share the gospel with, passed away. There are these inexplicable times where we just don't understand the will of God, right? What we need to do is renew our minds daily so that when we get to those seasons of life where it's too heavy for us to bear, we've cultivated a desire to love God's will so that our heart is aligned and attuned with God's heart so that even when we can't understand, we can still approve what God says is good is good. So, What's God speaking to you today? I want to just challenge you to only have one thing. (laughs) Uh, This type of text can be like, everything has to change. And there's part of that that's good. But Monday won't work out so hot. So I just want to encourage you. What's one thing that God's calling you to commit to and then consistently renewing? Where is it that maybe you have one foot in the world and one foot in the worship of God? Where can you dedicate more of your life to God? We need to rededicate, to refocus, to recommit ourselves to living for Jesus, but God knew that we needed this. This is why he inspired Paul to write these two powerful verses, because he cares for us, and he knew what we would be like. When did he seek us? When did he find us? Even when we were weak, right? He knew what he was getting himself into, And he is with us, helping us today. It's not just about making a commitment today. That's something that needs to happen. But it's also about making a commitment to recommitting, to resolve, to re-resolve. Today, tomorrow, and the next day, armed with the power of the Spirit and propelled by the incredible mercies of God in Christ, may our lives be living sacrifices, totally dedicated to Christ. And may our lives be holistically set apart for him alone. may our lives bring God much joy as we seek to live for him. Amen? Let me pray for us, and I'll just invite the band to come back up. Father, I pray against condemnation. Lord, if there is any type of activity happening right here that that's just seeking to rob us of the joy of our salvation, would you crush it now? And would you leave in in place of it, Lord, a holy desire to have all of our lives aligned with your will? Would you just now just do a a consecrating work in our hearts? Give us a resolve to re-resolve. Would you, Spirit of God, give us a commitment to recommit? Would you help us to live our lives as saved people by the mercies of God? In Jesus' name, amen.